This is Milo from Merchant, and you're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? I'm Nilla from Merchant. I am a recovering business executive turned author, uh, two-time author now, but uh, my uh, experience includes a whole bunch of tech companies, including Apple and Autodesk and working with a bunch of the Silicon Valley uh, leaders. Retired executive turned author. We're recording this where I'm just at my- Recovering, not retired. Retired would suggest I'm rich. Recovering suggests I'm still struggling. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. Although the recovery is going well, we're recording this. I'm I'm in my office in the U.S. and you are in Paris uh, on this fun little sabbatical adventure, etc. While writing the next book, so um, you know, recovery is working pretty well for you. I have to say, it is. It is. <laughs> so um, I I want to talk about a bunch of different stuff today. Um, I first thing that I want to do live in front of everybody, not live, but in front of everybody who's listening. Uh, is apologize. Um, I didn't encounter your work until after 11 Rules uh, had been out, and so I've been reading your stuff backwards. Um, but And that's I'm not apologizing for backwards. I'm apologizing for not noticing it all sooner. Um, and I don't actually remember how we met and how we connected and all that sort of stuff, but I was crazy excited when it did because I had read uh, 11 Rules as an, as an e-book. I don't know that I had ever gotten my hands on the new how. I actually really like the new how. I have it if I should, I don't know if I should tell you this or not. I have it sitting on my bookshelf normally next to Dove Seedman's how. So I get a kick every time I look up and I have two books next to each other, how and the new how, right? Um, (laughs) So somebody needs to write newer how one day and then I'll have like the trilogy. (laughs) Done. (laughs) Perfect. So then I'll have the trilogy completed. It'll be wonderful, right? Um, really, I, I guess let's start with, because the, the new how is sort of the first, um, at least time date wise, the first really, really good um, interaction uh, or, or um, assertion into the dialogue around collaboration and also its role in strategy. I think one of the really interesting things about the strategy world is we're obsessed with this question. In fact, I, I mean, I, I'm just reading it this week again. It's like a zombie question. It won't die. This strategy execution thing and everybody's saying, well, the problem is there's not a lot of discussion uh, going on and we're making strategies that aren't executable or, or we're not letting the executing folks be engaged in this. And I and every time I hear it, I just think, guys, um, Nilifer already solved this one. I don't know if you know this. There's this book called The New How and we talk about a new way to develop collaborative strategy and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and it even identifies to me one of these sort of big problems between um, what goes wrong with a lot of things in a company, but inc- inclusive of strategy, which is, I think you called it the air sandwich, which I think is really interesting because I don't like eating anything we call a blank sandwich. I don't like compliment sandwiches and I don't like air sandwiches. Um, it you tells know, it's funny. Wh- I, I called it the air sandwich and I, I uh, sorry to just jump in there, David. Uh, so one of the things about an air sandwich, right, is all the things that make a sandwich good are missing. And that's what's happening inside most organizations today. We're thinking about strategies being the top of that sandwich and execution being the bottom of that sandwich. And what I'm actually pointing out is actually that's actually causing the gap itself. That's why we're failing inside organizations, not because we're not smart people, not because we don't know how to execute, but because uh, in the process of creating the direction, we're not involving those people who are actually going to make it real. And so we, we end up either with ideas that aren't grounded in reality or we ended up we end up with things that people um, want to make happen but aren't tied to the larger vision, and so we're missing all the things that make 
essentially a sandwich good. Uh, in, in organizational terms, it would be understanding, communication, dialogue, debate, all that stuff that causes people to go, you know, when I'm out on the field, I'm actually trying to run that ball. Do I understand where the ball needs to go? And I don't need to check back in because I got it. I was in the room. I made, I helped make that decision. And, uh, and that's the biggest problem we have inside organizations is this thing I call an air sandwich. I should have named the book the air sandwich, right? That would have been good. <laughs> I think that would have been awesome. I like the new How Better because I, I don't have any other sandwich books um, on my <laughs> shelf. But uh, no, and, and did you just use a football analogy? I did. Wow. That did. Did I do it really badly? No, it, it, it worked really well. It was just surprising, right? Um, I mean, to me, most people that use sports analogies are causing the same strategy execution problem, right? They're using all sorts of metaphors not everyone understands. Um, no, I thought it was. I thought it was awesome. The thing that was the, I was most curious about it was you're in Paris, right? Where football is something totally different. Although I guess the the analogy still works. But I went back to I was thinking American rules football the whole time. Uh, maybe there's a lesson there, and we just had a, a metaphor air sandwich. Who knows? Um, so I mean, I don't want to just jump because there's a whole like an elaborate stage process. Um, multiple phases that you lay out in the book use this fun acronym called quest which is great uh i so i don't want to just jump into how do we solve this but um that seems like the best link to um how do we solve this how do we how do we fix an air how do we put good stuff back in the air sandwich let's 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 just ask it that way you know it starts with this fundamental tenet which um i assume that that people on the ground actually have ideas and that those ideas matter and what I think a lot of executives really struggle with is they don't think that. They think that their job is to be um, the smartest person in the room. And I call that in the book, I call it being the chief of answers. And, uh, and I said, being the chief of answers, by the way, is you should get tired at some point because you should run out of answers. Uh, but it also means you've made everyone else the tribe of doing things. And it means they have to leave their intelligence and their creativity at the door. And is that really what you want? You know, every time I'm talking to leaders, I'm like, is that really what you want? And they're like, no. And I go, okay, you're you're feeding this mechanism. And it's been what, um, I should know this, but it's probably been four or five years since the book came out. And I will make one universal observation um, that every part of an organization buys into this premise that somebody else can help fix this. So if I talk to a CEO group, um, they'll say, you know, I would change my chief of answers approach if only my people would participate more. And then if I'm talking to, you know, deeper down in the organization, people will say, you know, I would change my approach and I would participate more actively if my boss would give me permission. And uh, one of the things I will observe is that each party is buying into the trap that strategy belongs one place in an organization and that they need to get permission from that place in order for them to be able to participate in the system. And, and so, you know, all of us can actually be a part of that change wherever we are to, um, to change how we actually create the answer. And ultimately how we create the answer is incredibly important to actually being able to um, make it real, right? Because if you and I know from, from just being at the table is if we've had that conversation and that necessary debate, all of a sudden, like when we, the next set of trade-offs comes, we're like, oh, we don't want to do that because that would mean blah, blah, blah. And we just be able to fill in the blank and it's not because we're so much smarter. It's because we got a chance to sit at the table. I totally agree. I think it's funny to me because I think the idea of the, the, the core problem is this concept that strategy is a thing that happens, usually during an offsite, et cetera, but happens in a narrowly defined 
part of a hierarchy, right? And we can talk in a little bit about whether or not a hierarchy is even the right uh, structure for getting an organization or driving a movement, right? We can, um, but it, as long as the hierarchy exists, there's this sort of feeling that it only exists downward till a certain level. And then after that, it's all just about taking orders. When in reality, the people in the front lines usually have uh, better information, right? Um, okay. In and fact, I, oh, go ahead. Anything that's information or creativity based, that's true. So if you're running McDonald's, um, I'm not sure information flow is necessarily the same thing, although I could argue a customer at a location might might have some insight. Um, but it, So there are some industries where this may not apply. So I would say perhaps the oil industry it might not apply. Uh, silicon chip design might be better compartmentalized and hierarchical. But in anything that is about ideas, and it's an ideas economy, then you ought to figure out how to have um, as many people participate in making that idea a reality because ideas are of people, not just of the top ranked people. They're of, of people, all people. Well, and so it's interesting because you use the word ideas there in like uh, multiple times and it got me thinking about a section in the new how about um, making sure that you're killing ideas just as much as you're making sure you're accepting them. Because I think, I think the issue now is that so often the upper levels just kill every idea because it didn't come from the upper levels. But the, the other challenge is once you open up the, the gates and allow everybody to sort of speak in, there, there's also a lot of really bad ideas. What do you do with the bad ideas to make sure the good ideas went out? Yeah, so one of the things that um, I wrote in the book was this concept called murder boarding, which is what you're referring to. It's the opposite of whiteboarding. So we as a, as a culture really value and celebrate the idea creation process, and we really don't know how to put some of those to bed uh, and say, you know, those aren't right for us right now. And if I say it in my CEO kind of voice, it's murder boarding. And I happened to be sitting with um, the CEO of Nokia at the time, and we were having a conversation about what should the future of uh, Symbian and, and so on. And we had this conversation about murder boarding and I used it actually for effect. I was, I was simply trying to make a point and I said, you know, you're so good at coming up with ideas. What you actually need to do is murder those ideas. We need to get better at murder boarding and not just whiteboarding. And, and it was for effect, you know, for that, for that moment, it really stuck and, uh, and people got it. And I think the reality is we don't know how to have the same set of norms. So, why do, we, why do we say every idea is good during the whiteboarding phase, but then when we get to murderboarding, we're not willing to say, you know, there's some criteria we're going to use to, sh to decide which idea. Why can't you have a similar set of protocols that says we're going to actually understand and have a, a triage process to say which ideas we're going to park over here because it's not the right idea for us right now at this point. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting things in that is, is having a defined process, right, because then people can know what it is. I think one of the downsides is when you don't know what's going on behind the curtain and how people are making decisions whether or not to, to uh, act on your idea or not act on your idea, then you can feel like your idea was great and you never fully feel heard, if as it were. But this idea, what I liked about this idea of, of murderboarding, which is interesting because in my, in my book I actually criticized the murder board, but it's because of the feeling of what happens when everybody has to defend their idea and then there's a blank, you know, no one knows what criteria are being used to judge good ideas or bad ideas. But when everything is sort of open like that and you know here's what we're sort of looking for, you suddenly have people feeling heard even when their idea doesn't get executed. And that to me is really key. Yeah, it's, you know, I think you've actually said something really profound, which is um, that when we understand specifically what's going on rather than this generic and general experience, when we understand the specific, all of a sudden we get it. Yeah. And, this, and the thing is that most decision processes are not explicit enough 
people kind of nod their head and go, oh, we'll make that decision later kind of thing. As if it's sort of like parents making a decision with their children. And that's what I, I actually, now that I've been a parent now for many years and, and now a grandparent, what I find so interesting is the same things you learn that make you a good parent is exactly what makes you a good leader, which is you have to be able to explicitly say, here's why we're making this decision. Uh, there are probably, you know, only 10% of the decisions you have no vote on. And the rest of the decisions you do have a vote on because it's incredibly important that you shape that decision. Why do we do that for parents to children, right? But in work, it just becomes this black box, as you said, behind the curtain, right? There's some design criteria, design principles at play, but we have no idea what they are and no one will tell us. And then somehow we're supposed to get uh, excited. You know, one of the, switching gears for a second, so I, one of the facts that I found when I was writing the first book uh, was how much people were unengaged in business. And the fact I had found back then was that less than 5% of an organization understood what the strategy was of the organization. Just understood the strategy, let alone believed it, let alone were committed to it, which would be different levels of, you know, if you actually check those numbers, they would obviously decline. But 5% just knew. And I was like thinking, okay, that would be like saying, um, you know, participate in this household, but I won't tell you all the rules of the household. Right, exactly. Right. And, and because you're raising a child and I'm raising a child, I'm just fascinated with how much, once I finally get us clear about the decision rules of how we're going to operate, then all of a sudden a whole bunch of things start to happen really smoothly because we cooperate and we understand when to collaborate, when not to, how to help one another, where to do pass-offs, the same things that we learn to do as parents, we're doing as business people all the time. We're just not doing it very well. And we well, could apply that principle there. Well, I have to be fair. Uh, my kids are three and one, so I still don't know what the rules of the house are. I'm still figuring that out. But she, luckily, one of them can't talk. So I've got some time to figure out what the rules of the house are before I well, have to communicate this, them. This is the key. The thing I'm trying to teach you is the thing that's going to make you a great parent, right? Which I, I bet I learned as much of this from my kid as I did from the principles at work. So back, the reason I actually developed this whole collaborative leadership model might be useful for you in, in both contexts, both for Leader Lab and you as a parent. I had had a huge failing, I mean, epic, um, you know, one of those like hashtag epic fail uh, moments where I, I had basically, uh, I don't know when that do a long or the short version of the story, but I'll, I'll do the Reader's Digest and people can read the book if they want to. But basically I had um, been in a brutal fight within the organization. I thought I had responsibility for some chart of the business. This other person didn't agree with me about what the answer and strategy should be. We talked briefly, it didn't resolve it. At some point, Somebody asked us a point-blank question in a sort of tension-filled environment, and I threw this person underneath the bus. And because I was like, I'm going to be right, and as long as I have a chance to, I'm going to win. And uh, and I went home, and I remember just thinking, uh, that was not good. You know, like I totally had that, like, oh, I don't like how I feel about myself. I don't think that'll actually result in better work also. I mean, I was clear about that. The next day I came back, and this was when I was running the North America division of a $300 million business. So it was a good sized business that I was in charge of. And, uh, uh, and this person who owned part of my marketing budget, so I own the revenue, they own the budget, uh, related to it. So I didn't have full P&L. I came back the next day and I'm talking to the CEO of the company and she says, you know, I'm going to have to fire you. And I was like, why? I, like, I'm totally right. And she says, you know, actually, I know you're right. But here's the thing, no one actually believes that you care about their interests right now because you just finished throwing this person underneath the bus. And uh, I left that job, which I'm now, you know, 
uh, feeling like a complete failure. And I actually knew I was a complete failure, just to be fair. I knew I was a complete failure and I had demonstrated proof now that I'm a complete failure. And I spent the next 10 years asking myself a really fundamental question. And that's what the genesis of the book is about. The fundamental question was this. I thought results were everything and that the how is a secondary thing. And what I finally got to is, the question was, is there a way to get the results you want and do it in such a way that people so want to execute on that decision with you or those opposing ideas? And with that question became a quest. And in the process then of the next 10 years, I basically taught myself how to do collaborative model leadership, which is why obviously I enjoy teaching other people now because it's so counterintuitive to all the things we're taught in business school, all the things we're taught early on in business, which is you should already know the answer. David, if you're smart as a leader, you should already know the answer. And at some point, that's actually not the right advice. Yeah, I totally agree. And interesting um, <clears throat> thinking through the implications for, ter- for parenting too have me scribbling notes as I'm, as I'm trying to re- record a podcast. What's interesting to me about how you say that is that to me seems like a, a, a perfectly logical bridge in your career as a, as a writer from new how also to the social era, right? Because people, I think when, as we move from, uh, you could call it industrial age to information age to social age or, or what have you, I think people care way more about the how. It's not just, are you accomplishing the ends, but it really is, how are you doing it? Um, what are you sort of justifying. I mean, I, I look at um, one of the one of the things that's come out since the ele- since 11 rules for creating value in the social era was this um, Henry Tim's and this idea of new power, right? And what power looks like now, which I think is really interesting because one of the implications from it, he doesn't say it, but one of the in- implications it is like, okay, we'll go back and read this 11 rules book because if power is far more distributed in a social era, then what you're trying to accomplish, you can't use old school methods for you can't use the old school house of power you have to use these these new ones and he uses a bunch of different examples um everything from sort of how organizations are structured to like the barack obama campaign i love it. you in in 11 rules use ted as an example but that uh, how you structure and how you engage with people in this collaborative uh, collaborative world is almost more important than what you want to accomplish i mean what i guess what i'm circulating around is to some extent you have to know the desired purpose, but have relinquished sort of freedom in how we get there, right? Because you have to trust that your people will get you there. So what you used to manage for, if I kind of go back to old school days, uh, and especially, you know, as an early parent, you're basically just focused on keeping them alive. And so you're kind of responsible for what across the board. And then at some point you start realizing, you know what, these people are their own beings and they have things to contribute. And you start shifting over to the how, because you realize if I can define the parameters of success well enough, you will fill in what it needs to be on the inside. And the same is true for leadership in modern times, which is if I can set for you the parameters, the horizon of what we need to aim for, um, then you will tell me all the different ways we can get to that horizon. I don't need to tell you. You're super creative, right? And, and then it becomes a really interesting uh, way for us to co co-work together, co-create something together. Um, because I, as a, a leader of an organization, might have a set of ideas about where we need to go, high level. And then there are probably a thousand different ways we can get there. So what are those different ways and which ones do we want to go and how do we get aligned on it? And that allows all the talent that's inherent in each and every single person, the new power, as Henry calls it, Henry and Jeremy, um, it lets it get unleashed 
um, because that's the opportunity for us to collaborate. And that's that's the big shift I made from New How to the second book, right? The first book is basically how do you collaborate within the enterprise? And then the second book argues that collaboration can be a major form of advantage in the social era. And they're both forms of collaboration. Now I'm just talking about how you could use it outside the enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is interesting because I know what you're working on behind the scenes, but let's table that for a second. Um, I think, I, I think first of all, this it's weird because there's a two mind shifts that have to happen, right? The first is that a leader has to understand that they have to collaborate with everybody inside the organization. And then once they master that, it's sort of like, you know, none of us is smart, is as smart as all of us. So let's interact with everybody in the organization. Oh, wait, we couldn't possibly have all of the smartest people in the world only inside our organization. So none of us in the organization is as smart as everyone. So let's go into that, which I think is is really kind of interesting because it's two really big mind shifts from uh, basically what we learn or continue to teach inside of business school. I want to oh, go ahead. I want to just do a little asterisk next to that. It's not a free for all, right? Which is what the murder boarding thing is pointing to. Also, it's not a free for all, and the key is to know what is it you need to hold open, and what is it you need to hold tight in terms of design principles. Yeah. And, and, and most of us hold tight all the time because we think that's the model or we talk about new power and all the stuff as if it's like nirvana. And actually, it's it's more a hybrid between those two that lets it work. And and when you get sophisticated as a leader, you need to understand that, which is why, by the way, that TED piece that you talked about made the front cover of Harvard Business Review, what, like a year ago, two years ago? It's, I think, a really smart piece because it's trying to talk to you. There's just this one section I want to point readers to in case they go find it. There's TED what TED the conference does, what TED does on TED.com and what they do through TEDx. And the piece is really written to point out the fact that TED is not open. It's not open, open, all the way open. They've actually decided what the main criteria is and then they figured out where the gates are that they need to manage for. And then the rest is fill in the colors that you want to fill in. So it's optimizing um, for using all the talent that's there and yet really maintaining the controls where you need to maintain the control. So I think there's a good example. And, and I think, uh, you know, for all of us to think about what is it we need to design for now? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, it's an awesome, awesome example. Um, one that, that you and I both have sort of witnessed from a couple different, a couple different angles. And I guess I never thought about the, the, the difference between how a TEDx talk gets on TED.com as a form of murder boarding, right? Because there's there's a whole other channel for all of the people who are doing TEDx and only a few uh, or only, you could say only the really good, but really it's only the ones that meet the criteria migrate over and become, move from being called TEDx talks as you were to TED talks or, or what have you, right? And then even in, so that's the strictest control. And then even outside that, there is the control of what constitutes a TEDx event, and here are all the things, you know, here are all the lines, go ahead and color whatever color you want, but, you know, respect the lines. It makes, makes perfect sense. And I hadn't thought about the multiple levels of, uh, of murder boarding, if you will. Yeah, and I think that's the thing we're not really doing a good job of as leaders is we're, we're talking about it in somewhat, you know, binary ways. I do it too. It's my fault too. Sometimes when I do it, you know, where I say, well, this idea is dead. And I, and I, I in fact, I was just helping a friend who's doing a book that's very similar to social era. And I said, if I had advice to give myself, uh, you know, this many years later after writing social era and you have is I would stop saying this idea is dead, which is sort of an easy way to say it. Um, and it's broad brush enough where you kind of get the big strokes, but to actually say, when is it, when does this make more sense than this? And that's where, uh, and that's perhaps just my own understanding has evolved. And this is what I want us to get to. It's not like we're saying open beats closed. 
we're saying in order for us to actually use collaboration well, we've got to change our criteria of what it is we're managing for, from what to how, and then behind that to understand what are the key things you need to manage for, and then let the rest of the stuff go. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, the thing that I think is interesting is all is there's a lot of different clickbait headlines that say such and such is dead. I always favor going after the the actual traditional English royalty, right? The king is dead. Long live the king, meaning there's immediately a new king, right? So I have a I think I have a piece that I wrote a while back called Brainstorming is Dead, Long Live Brainstorming. And it's exactly that. It's not this idea is dead. It's here's when this idea works and it's actually a very narrow circumstance and the skill is knowing when to use it and when not. And it's the same thing with, I think, this idea of, of when and how to use collaboration. It's not that closed is dead or that collaboration is dead. Long live closed. Long live collaboration, <laughs> right? That's fair. That's fair. And, and I think the one thing we're really trying to say, though, that I think you and I especially could agree on is because we're both such innovation experts, is you cannot have an innovation advantage today without having a passion and talent advantage. And that's the thing we're actually trying to get to between you, how and all the stuff we're both writing about and thinking about is how do we tap into um, all the talent that's readily available and actually believe it's readable. We may just not be able to see it right now. Totally, totally, totally agree. I wonder if we could switch a little bit from these ideas and focus more on the ideator, the, the talented, passionate person that is you and ask you a couple questions. The first one we ask everybody on the podcast is what are you reading right now? What am I reading right now? Well, the thing that's right next to my bed, oh gosh, now you ask me this question, it sounds sort of weird. Uh, it's called Identity and Violence. And it's by Amartya Sen, who's the Nobel Prize winner. Um, and it's talking about de how destiny is, um, it, it's called the illusion of destiny is the subhead. And it's basically talking about how much identity uh, has traditionally been formed by race and religion as class. And and if we're going to move towards um, a better understanding of peace, we actually have to re-understand identity. Uh, so I'm reading that for, I don't know, for no reason whatsoever. I'm an econ major, right? So that's that's background reading. Um, what else do I just read? I just wrote Writing to the Bone or writing, writing the Bones, Writing the Bones, which I really liked as a writer. So those are probably my latest books. Nice. And I know the answer to this question. We've hinted at it a couple times. Uh, and I think it, it plays into, it's a beautiful bridge back to that talent and passion and purpose thing. But what's next for you? What are you working on? Uh, you know, one of the ideas I introduced in book two, um, so in 11 Rules for Social Era, I just wrote, you know, a nice, simple book with Harvard Press publishing it, uh, which was about how value creation has fundamentally changed uh, from capital-based systems, so pr predominantly capital or predominantly organizations, to a place where um, each and every single person's talent counts. And I call that spot in the world that only you're standing in, onlyness. Uh, that each of us is standing in a spot only you're standing in, which is a function of your history and experiences, visions and hopes. And from that place is where we create value. And I use onlyness versus like, let's say uniqueness, uh, because at the time I was writing the book, I was on a corporate board and I would periodically have someone on the board who were they all largely look the same uh, and I did not one of these did not look like the other um, and they would say you know you're a woman or you're a you know and they would make some comment about my gender and say that's so unique and that's why we're asking you the question was the implication and I was sitting there thinking you know I've shipped over a hundred products in my career which represents over 18 billion dollars worth of revenue and done a ton of experiences about that and that's 
And the fact that I'm a woman is sort of the least interesting thing about me. And the fact that you call me quote unquote unique, when 52% of the population, by the way, is a woman, it's, I just found it astonishing they would use that word. And so I was trying to find some word that wasn't relative, but really bought into the distinct value of each and every single individual called onlyness. And then um, I think people really got that, that, that onlyness was so key. And I dovetailed that idea with the second part, which is um, connected people can now do what only large organizations could, which is a pretty profound idea when you think about it. And so if you bring those two together, it's how ideas become powerful enough to dent the world. And that's, that's the, that's the uh, nugget that I am now um, pursuing. Viking slash Penguin will publish that book in 2016. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I, I, I don't need to tell you that. I need to tell everyone who's listening to also look forward to it because I think it's an amazing concept. And one that it's one of those concepts that when you first told it to me, I, uh, I was not intrigued by it because it was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. And now I have a word, right? The, yeah. the downside of language is that sometimes if you think in language, you only have that language to think in. And so you have these feelings, these thoughts, these ideas that can, you don't know how to describe. And I think that's perfect. It, to me, it's the missing piece, right? Because if if we just talk about the power of collaboration to make a dent in the universe, then we're talking about sort of undefined masses of people, right? Instead of thinking about how each person inside of that mass is a person. And therefore, they, you know, there's not an average of these sort of people. It's individual people who are then collaborating and, and uh, collaborating sometimes for different reasons, but towards the same sort of shared purpose, even if it's from different angles. And I think we really haven't investigated that. And so I'm excited to see the results of that investigation. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. You know, what? what's fun about writing a book, and I know you're doing one too, um, is you get a chance to look at old ideas you've had kind of fresh, right? So I used to say talent mattered. And now I go, oh, actually talent matters, but I'm being even more specific in that because talent is often credentialed. So often you need to have a certain degree and go through some certain gateways so somebody can say, hey, you're qualified to have this job or you're qualified to do this. And I'm actually saying something slightly more nuanced than that now, right? With the word onlyness, which is in spite of making it through gates, uh, where you have to first fit in, in order to be seen as valuable, I'm actually saying you are valuable even when you don't fit in. And so we can change the world to fit you, not the other way around. Totally. Totally. I love it. I love it. So we'll be keeping an eye on that for sure. We'll, um, I already, you're already invited back on the podcast to talk about that when the idea is sort of fully explored and ready to launch. Awesome. Um, I it, to that. In the meantime, how can people get a hold of you? Uh, probably the blog. So I have a blog called Yes and No, as in K-N-O-W, Yes and No, uh, which is a pretty active community of people who are working on figuring out how to navigate these times together. And you're more than welcome to join up for that. There's a really fun newsletter that comes out uh, once a week and um, essays and thoughts and, and more importantly, a conversation that's sort of continually going on. Awesome. Awesome. Well, as I said, we'll be looking forward to uh, onlyness, but only after we've done our refreshers on the, the new how, the new old how, the how, how, uh, and 11 rules for the social era. Seriously, I want every book with how in the title now on the same shelf. I think that'd be great. Um, in, in the meantime, Nilifer, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. Thanks, David.